0: From Allport to Philadelphia, Johnstown to York, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, the legislature has taken the first steps toward reducing Pennsylvania's highest-in-the-nation corporate net income tax. That will make the state a more attractive place to conduct business. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is here for a Capital Watch discussion with Tim Vermeer of the Tax Foundation. And the latest tactic from the left is to label mainstream policy positions as extremist. I'll have a town hall commentary about how even you could be considered an extremist. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Dave Taylor and Tim Vermeer in just a couple of minutes, but first, headlines from patownhall.com. Pennsylvania casino revenue surged past the $5 billion mark in fiscal 2021-22 as the industry posted record growth and income. The Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board reported the state's 16 casinos generated $5.04 billion in revenue during the recently completed fiscal year. That is an increase from $3.9 billion in the previous year. The Center Square reports that although pandemic restrictions have been lifted, Pennsylvania's economy has yet to bounce back. A new report from the Independent Fiscal Office finds the state has lost 120,000 workers since 2019 and our unemployment rate is higher than the national rate. According to the report, there are roughly 100,000 unfilled jobs in the Commonwealth and that despite the fact the state lost 139,000 payroll jobs between May of 2019 and May of 2022. Most of the job losses were in the nursing and personal care sector and in the restaurant industry. The IFO concludes the state's shrinking workforce is due to an aging population retiring or leaving the state and parents leaving jobs and careers to care for children. The recently passed a budget included an additional $45 million to counties to help defray the cost of conducting elections. But there are strings attached to the money which may cause some counties to pass on accepting the funds. Among those strings, a requirement that the counting of mail-in ballots begin at 7 a.m. on Election Day and continue uninterrupted until the counting is completed. Counties have been asking the state to allow them to open and prepare mail-in ballots for counting prior to Election Day. That provision was not included. Acceptance of the funds also prohibits counties from accepting private dollars to fund election-related tasks. And as President Joe Biden returns from a trip to the Middle East in a quest to get more oil imports, domestic energy production suffered another setback this past week as the Allegheny County Council Overrode a veto by County Executive Rich Fitzgerald of a measure that bans new fracking leases in county parks. The ban will now go into effect, depriving Allegheny County of non-taxpayer revenue and further restricting the nation's production of natural gas. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Pennsylvania's High Corporate Net Income Tax, or CNI, has been a barrier to attracting new business and new jobs into the Commonwealth. But the new state budget begins the process of lowering that rate. David Taylor is here for a Capital Watch look at the benefits of this move. He is joined by Tim Vermeer, a Senior State Tax Policy Analyst with the Tax Foundation. David and welcome once again to Capital Watch,
1: where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. So the Pennsylvania General Fund budget for year 22-23 is finally signed and uh, in effect. And uh, as ever, a mixed bag of, of stuff. But there was a, a little bit of daylight with progress with one of Pennsylvania's long-term challenges, which is the competitiveness of our business tax Structure. And so to discuss that, I'm really excited to welcome our special guest, Tim Vermeer, Senior State Tax Policy Analyst at the Tax Foundation. Tim, thanks for being on the program.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me on.
1: Pennsylvania's corporate net income tax has been at 9.99% since 1995. And at various points along the way, it's been the highest or second highest or depending on how you how you slice it, uh, definitely the highest flat rate tax in America. And this has been a, a pretty significant impediment because, first of all, there's just the sticker shock of having the highest rate or one of the highest rates in the country on top of other things like, you know, the regulatory climate, the legal climate, so on and so forth. And that it's, We've done other things along the way. We've managed to phase out the capital stock and franchise tax. We managed to achieve some improvements with the, the tax appeals process. But, but making progress on this big ticket sticker shock 9.9 rate, 9.99 rate has been elusive until now. But in this year's budget, we have a, the beginning of a phase down plan. We're going to go from nine point nine nine percent now to eight point nine nine percent in January, and then the plan is that we'll go down a half percent a year for the next eight years to finally get to four point nine nine percent. What's your What's your overview on that that planned phase down?
2: Yeah, David. I mean, it's been uh, good news from Harrisburg um, that they're was an agreement that was able to be reached at all on the CNIT. But I've kind of been describing this as a, it's it's a good but plan. Um, <laughs> it's good that the policymakers finally have been able to reach a deal. As you said, there hasn't been a reduction to the uh, corporate net income tax rate since 1995. And there really hasn't been any meaningful tax decreases for uh, on the business front since the capital stock and franchise tax, which I think that legislation started moving in 2002, yes, there's like you say, 9.99 percent, almost 10 percent. That's been a big impediment for for businesses, especially when you couple some of the other structural challenges in Pennsylvania's tax code. We've got Pennsylvania is one of only a handful of states that limits the ability of businesses to carry forward net operating losses. Yeah,
1: and that's a huge um, problem. And, and Tim, I'd, this is like one of my hobby horses. Let me just opine a little bit. So under the IRS code and tax law in like 47 or 48 states, a business is allowed to use the fullness of its recent losses against its current and near future tax liability. So it's just like for for companies that don't make a profit in nice, tidy 12-month chunks, it smooths out the tax burden. Pennsylvania is one of the only places in America... Where that practice is not deployed, and so as a result, Pennsylvania is one of the only places where investors are going to not choose to put their put their money. So it means that we have a very low business startup rate, which I think is a real you know a real flashing red light on our economic dashboard.
2: It definitely is, David, and we are uh, trying to put out you know you're trying to put out the welcome mat in in pennsylvania and um reverse this reputation that that pennsylvania's kind of worked hard to build uh, this kind of anti kind of an anti-business reputation trying to trying to reverse that by going and cutting the cnit rate and this is kind of coming back to the good but it's good that there was a cut but it's only down to eight point nine nine percent next year so that's still, depending on what happens in Iowa, because Iowa's um, going to likely reduce their rate by about a percentage point, mm-hmm. you're still going to be at five or sixth highest in the country. Yes. So the risk here, I think, is that you've got highly publicized rate cut. We're doing these good things on lower, trying to lower the CNIT rate, but then it's going to take several years still before that rate becomes competitive and starts to... You know, attract businesses back to Pennsylvania, and so I think the risk here is that policymakers might get cold feet, kind of like they did with the capital stock and franchise tax. Yes, not a not a helpful tax for business, but it was haphazardly implemented. It was paused and restarted for years before finally being eliminated. Yes, and uh, kind of held hostage uh, to the budget process. And so, what my fear is is that that could happen with the the CNIT reduction, and they might say, Well, look, you know, we haven't seen really many, you know, the returns that we're looking for, we need the revenue, and so we're going to pause it, and that is. Yes just not a helpful solution in and, this
1: case yes and unfortunately with you know with the way that uh, that Harrisburg operates uh, you know that's exactly what I'm expecting we're gonna have to go in every budget cycle and um, and fight tooth and nail to hang on to that half uh, a percent reduction that's been been promised but just because it's the schedule is put into the law it doesn't mean that future uh, governors or general assemblies are obligated to follow it so you know each year we're going to have to go and and fight for this and if we do in January of 2031 our rate will finally be as low as Indiana's is today so it's it's you know competitiveness is a moving target that just because Pennsylvania makes progress relative to where we have been it doesn't mean that we're making net progress and And the other thing that I'd like to just really emphasize for the listeners is there is a world of difference between tax rates and tax collections. So by having a more competitive rate that we can earn private sector investment so the economy grows, that the economy will be bigger. And as a result, it will naturally throw off more revenue for the public treasury. At the lower rate. So it's like, yes, we want greater collections for the Commonwealth for public purposes, if and only if it reflects increased profitability on the same scale, like you don't get like you could double the tax rate, but you wouldn't double the collections. If anything, you'd probably reduce the collections to zero just because a 20 percent rate would be insane and everybody would give up and move away. And that that seems to be one of the main misunderstandings in the course of these kinds of tax policy debates.
2: Right. And I don't want to kind of bemoan what should be kind of a positive step forward here, you know, but I think that the legislature had an opportunity to make a, a bold rate cut uh, that really would have sent that signal that Pennsylvania is open for business. And then from there, we could have gone down further based on some revenue triggers. And like you say, there's going to be some expansion to the tax base by drawing in more businesses to Pennsylvania by increasing that productivity. You know, and I think that would have been the ideal model. On the one hand, several states have kind of taken this uh, incremental annual reduction model approach where, you know, they kind of are in a bad place initially, and then they chip away slowly at it. You know, Indiana did that. Yes, They used to be at 8.5%. Now they're at, I think, 4.9%. Yes, But on the other hand, like you said earlier, this, this sluggish pace of uh, CNIT reductions kind of evokes memories of the capital stock and franchise tax phase out. So you're not, I mean, that's kind of an impediment that Indiana didn't have, which is the history of this haphazard implementation in the legislature. So I would encourage policymakers and uh, um, lawmakers, you know, to to take the approach that North Carolina has, that Arkansas is looking at in its special session coming up in August of these kind of we've put a plan down uh, and we've set a long-term target and now we're going to speed it up. You might be able to do something similar where if you can't come to an agreement on accelerating the CNIT rate, Reductions. You do something else, like you do NOL, you know, net, yes. net operating loss reform. Yes. Yes. You do something for small businesses because a lot of this touches on on corporations. Yes. We've talked about net operating losses for corporations and the limitations there, and that should be addressed. But there is also Pennsylvania is also unique in the fact that it does not extend net operating losses at the Small business at the at the pass through business level. Yes. So I think I think it's Pennsylvania and Massachusetts are the only states that, that don't do that. And so there is a large portion of the business world in Pennsylvania that would be benefited through that, the same way that that corporations would. You could also talk about on the small business front again. You can talk about reforming the Commonwealth's uh, treatment of income. And so you've, I think you've got eight classes of income right yeah. between yeah. interest and dividends and wages and business income and none of those are allowed to offset another so if you have a gain in one area and a loss in the other let's say your wife earns a wage and you run a business and you had a loss in that business your loss does not offset anything that she has earned and so you're paying the full amount on her earnings when in, no- in most states on a in a joint return, you would take the, the net taxable income from that and pay taxes on that. That's another area where Pennsylvania is kind of behind the curve in terms of its in terms of its tax code,
1: yeah, added to the long growing list. You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, my guest Tim Vermeer from the Tax Foundation. And you know, Tim, talking about the uh, helping uh, the small businesses, the the S corps and the partnerships and the LLCs. We did make some progress in this last budget where um, that the small businesses were were given a tax exemption for the like kind exchanges. That if you're if you're selling a piece of gear to replace it with a better piece piece of gear that you don't get taxed on on the on the the the, the revenue from the sale and the same thing if you're upgrading for you know for buildings or you know or vehicles in your fleet and that that was just a common sense change that that needed to happen i mean one of the things that you know i want to see us get to is as was the case in Colorado once you get the corporate rate down to like close to the personal rate or the pass through rate, then you have entities forming based on what the what's operationally best for the company rather than just rather than just tax avoidance. Because, um, you know, that the C corporations that they can issue shares, that these uh, S corps and LLCs and partnerships can't do that. Um, which means that it's more difficult to raise capital, which means it's a great way to keep small businesses small. So if you can get that, that rate on the corporate side down to something approaching the, the pass-through rate, then um, again, like I said, people can start making decisions based on what's best structurally and operationally for their enterprise rather than just trying to you know, minimize the tax bite.
2: Right, no, hundred percent, David. I I agree, Um, and we've seen some again incremental approaches in this most recent tax bill out of Harrisburg. Um, You know, section one seventy nine was reformed. That's the the, you know the treatment of um, investment um, by you know made by small businesses. Used to be that a small business was only allowed to deduct up to, you know, $25,000 um, of the investments that it made in the year that that investment was made. And so, you know, you could put, you know, uh, you know, $500,000 of new equipment in your plant, uh, but only be able to expense 25000 of that mm-hmm. in that current tax year. Mm-hmm. And so that really accelerates the amount of tax that you owe, Right off the jump, mm-hmm. um, the federal system has uh, a provision where you can write off a million dollars. I think it's actually you know uh, a million and, and some change, adjusted for inflation. But um, this is another that was another case where Pennsylvania did not conform to what many states did. Yep. So the twenty-five thousand dollar expensing limit. I think it was tied for lowest in the country. Yeah. Well, you know, this law um, will reform that, and and now, now it conforms with the federal standard, and that's a good thing for for small businesses. It's a good thing for productivity. Um, you know, profit uh, productivity directly leads to you know wage increases. Yep. The more, the more productive you are, the more those employees will earn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so that's a good thing, and this and, is,
1: yeah, this is the world we want to live in i mean it's it's you know rather than treating the the business community as a you know as a beast of burden to be whipped that we need policymakers to recognize that the car- eco- the economy is a garden that we need to cultivate, and that we've got to act like we want the investments and the jobs and the you know all of the all of the prosperity that comes from that, and the more difficult that uh A state government... In this case Pennsylvania uh, the more difficult that we make it for uh, investors and entrepreneurs to start their businesses to um, you know to get return from from capital investment it's like they're just going to go someplace else and and again, Indiana is just on the other side of Ohio, so I mean it is you know it is it is a competitive world it's a moving target, and that this is why you know we need the the lawmakers and decision makers in Harrisburg to you know to prioritize competitiveness and growth, and this is why, you know, again, even though it's only a start, we're grateful to see this start um, of the long march of finally hammering down the CNI-T rate to something competitive.
2: Right, right. And I think I, I really should should make the point, um, because I think that your listeners are probably thinking, you know, well, what's in it for me? I'm hearing a lot about businesses and the benefits to corporations and uh, you know, but what about me? And I think that's probably one of the most misunderstood, uh, you know, that's one of the greatest misconceptions about this, about the corporate income tax in general, is that that tax is borne by business owners or, you know, stockholders. And it's not. Uh, some of it is, but there's a good deal of um, behavioral yep. alterations that... Yep business owners and uh, decision makers within corporations will make. And some of that translates into, you know, high, higher cost of finished goods mm-hmm. that's borne by the consumer. Slower see, growth,
1: uh, it's sluggish wage growth. You know, there are all different ways that consumers um, and society pay for increased burdens on employers.
2: Right. And so by reducing some of those burdens, we should see wage increases Uh, We should see job availability and, you know, the ability to pay more will also draw more people Uh, out into the labor force and that's been a challenge recently too
1: yes sir absolutely well um tim we thank you for uh for your time with us obviously we thank you for the outstanding work uh that the tax foundation does on these um important and complex public policy issues um for the listeners tim where can they go to learn more about you and the tax foundation and the things that you're doing
2: well, they can read a lot more and you know, in greater detail at the at taxfoundation. Uh, org. That's our website, uh-huh. and um, you can look up the, the state team there. And we've got a lot of resources, um, both for policymakers and uh, just for um, the average taxpayer. And, you know, we're an educational organization, and and that's what we do. Uh, we try to make um, tax policy accessible and understandable, and. Um, we so thank, I appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely.
1: David. No, and we appreciate your efforts to that in and on the program with us today. As ever, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network on Sunday mornings at 8:30 with PMA Perspective. Again, special thanks to our guest Tim Vermeer, Senior State Tax Policy Analyst for the Tax Foundation, and from Tim and me, thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry.
0: Thank you, David. A favorite and often effective tactic utilized by the American left is to give names to things that make them appear to be something other than what they in fact are, a sort of political Jedi mind trick. For example, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, resulted in increased insurance costs and restricted consumer choice. The American Rescue Plan, designed to blunt the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, has instead Visited upon the nation record inflation. The midterm general election cycle has begun, and once again the left has settled on misdirection as a core strategy. This time, the tactic is being used to describe every mainstream policy position as extreme. The left comes by this honestly in that it has been captured by the most radical of its adherents who truly believe that the mainstream is extreme. Across the land, any candidate who does not worship at the altar of AOC and Bernie Sanders is being labeled extreme. What exactly does the left view as extreme? Might you yourself be an extremist? With apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, let me provide a few examples. You might be an extremist if you know that the United States was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, which remain dominant, but fully respect the rights of others to worship as they please. You might be an extremist if you believe that killing in the womb a baby human being with a heartbeat is wrong. You might be an extremist if you think government at all levels should spend within the means of the taxpayers who fund it. You might be an extremist if you welcome legal immigrants and refugees from other nations, but want our country to have secured borders. You might be an extremist if you think the harvesting of our nation's natural energy resources is preferable to being dependent on oil from unstable foreign regimes. You might be an extremist if you support your local police and reject the Defund the Police movement that has led to a surge in violent crime in our nation's cities. You might be an extremist if you think the electorate should be comprised of live citizens voting once. You might be an extremist if regulations are a necessity for the smooth function of the economy, but over-regulation by non elected bureaucrats stifles innovation and job creation. You might be an extremist if you care about a clean environment, but understand the climate is constantly changing, and that is being used to justify a massive expansion of government intervention into the economy. You might be an extremist if... You want the core causes of gun violence, such as mental health, to be addressed, rather than restricting the rights of responsible gun owners. You might be an extremist if you call mothers, well, mothers and not birthing persons. You might be an extremist if you think people should be able to express non-woke opinions without being canceled. If you identified with one or more of these views, take away the if— and the left will consider you to be an extremist. If you are a candidate for public office and you support any of these policy positions, then you will be labeled in every legacy media report as a far-right candidate. All of these are center-right, eminently reasonable views on current issues. But the left has moved so far left, the center is now considered to be extreme. The left is totally intolerant of any departure from the views it deems to be politically correct, so anyone doing so must be labeled an extremist. Further, the far left policies of the Biden administration have been an unmitigated disaster. From the embarrassing surrender in Afghanistan to a 40 year high inflation rate to the destruction of the nation's energy independence, resulting in record high gasoline prices, America is paying a steep price for its current experiment in democratic socialism. Recent polls find over 80% of Americans think the country is on the wrong track. When it is your policies that put us on the wrong track and you have no defense, the default tactic is name-calling. Name-calling, the last refuge of extremism. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WISLAM in WXMT WXMTFM in Smithport, along with WBHVAM in Somerset, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, all of whom have helped to underwrite the cost of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.